Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We began this great book last uh, Sunday. And uh, so excited about continuing uh, in this book. The title of the series uh, going through this book is The Gospel on Display. And you might put Through the Church. The Gospel on Display Through the Church. That's going to be kind of our running theme as we look at the contents of this book. Titus chapter 1. Well, as I mentioned, we went to uh, Camp Equip this uh, last week and uh, just had a really good time uh, in fellowship together and interacting with the students and just discussing with them the truth that we were hearing and uh, had great food and great activities and everything. But, of course, the focus and the, um, the highlight for me always is the ministry of the Word um, because that's really what we're doing. We're leaving for a period of focused time, uh, and we are focusing upon just where we are at spiritually before the Lord as His Word is preached and as we discuss with each other and with the students what the Lord is doing in our lives and, and how we need to respond to the Word of God. And I love the theme that um, they picked for this particular camp, uh, clinging to Christ, clinging to Christ. And Pastor PJ, who was the speaker there, uh, opened up the book of Revelation and actually did sermons out of Revelation and then did one sermon out of the Gospel of Luke. And um, really, uh, the focus for him was twofold. One, he wanted us to uh, see the big picture and the end of the story where everything is headed for us as believers, not just personally, but collectively as God's church. Um, uh, he wanted to just emphasize from the book of Revelation just how we as people can take hope and how the story ends. And uh, we need to be reflecting upon the contents of Revelation and reminding ourselves of the fact that everything is headed for a particular, a particular direction. And, and so we looked at the throne room, the picture of the throne room in heaven, where the Lamb of God is, is, is there as a center point of worship. And as there is a multitude of people there, and myriads and myriads of angels are singing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what a wonderful picture. And so we were reminded of the fact that everything is heading there. That as believers, we can have hope in this earth because of the fact that one day God is gathering in the present people from every tongue and nation and tribe who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And one day we will be worshiping the Lord together in heaven. And of course, it's that um, perspective that shapes our thinking and our outlook, right? Or, that, or those realities that shape our perspective, beloved, as we live in the, on, on this earth. Um, when we think about where everything is headed, we um, are catapulted as individuals and as a church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel here on this earth. Um, how we live our lives on this earth matters in the light of the hope of Christ to come, in the light of the contents of Revelation and what God is doing and where God, God is, is, is a, a his, the plan that he's unfolding and where we're all heading to worship him forever and ever uh, for eternity. How does the church do that? How does the church live in the light of the hope to come on this earth? We began talking about this last week, that the church displays the glory of God on earth and displays the gospel by preaching the gospel. By preaching the message of Jesus to a, a world that is lost. Our existence here on this earth matters in the light of what is to come. And not only do we preach the gospel, the message, the saving message of Christ, but we then also embody the gospel on this earth. 
in our conduct, in the message that we send to people and that we speak to people by the way that we live our lives. Not just as individuals, but I would submit to you throughout this series that we're doing as a corporate body, as a church, how we conduct ourselves sends a message to the lost world around us. We are here on earth as a church to display the glory of God through the preaching of the gospel, as well as through embodying the gospel in the way that we live in obedient response to the word of God. I think Peter essentially articulates the same thing when he writes to believers in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Listen to what he says. But you, speaking to believers, followers of Christ, Christians, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So there's their identity in Christ, which we've talked so much about from Colossians, right, as well. We are, they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that, there's your purpose clause, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. These believers were experiencing persecution that Peter was writing to. And in the midst of that, in the midst of persecution and trial and suffering for their faith, Paul says, what is the greatest thing that you can do? It is to live in submission to the governing authorities, to love God with all of your heart and love one another, and in so doing, proclaim the excellencies of God who has called you into his marvelous light. The God who has called you out of darkness. And so the message that he sends to the church that he writes to, or to these believers, is we are here on earth to to make much of God. That people would look to the glory and the majesty of God and who he is. That is why the church exists on earth, beloved. We saw the same thing in Ephesians chapter 3. That it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to the world around us. Through the church, through God's redeemed people. And so Paul's point to Titus is the same. If the church is to be um, a light on this earth, to display something about the glory of God and to put the gospel on display, then Paul says to Titus, Titus, the church must be established. The church must be what God has called her to be. The church must be grounded in the truth. In sound doctrine, which just means healthy teaching, healthy content that leads as it's applied then to sound living, healthy living, which ultimately, beloved, I would add that that sound living is expressed in loving God and loving one another. Isn't that the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends everything. That's what it comes down to. Sound doctrine that leads to sound living. And that sound living is is predominantly expressed, summarized in love for God and love for one another as a church. 
And it is in that way that we display the gospel on earth as a church. That we show something about the glory of God to people, to the watching world around us. That is the message of Titus. Now, I mentioned to you as we look at the opening verses here of Titus, I mentioned to you last week that unique to this letter is this long introduction by Paul. Verses 1 through 4 are one long sentence in the Greek. And it is similar. The introduction is to other introductions in other letters in that it has the component of of an author, of a recipient, and of a greeting, which he gives in verse 4. Paul is the author, the recipient is Titus. The greeting is given to us in verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So it's similar in those components to other, the opening of other letters. But what is unique to this letter here is that Paul really expands upon his identity in verses 1 through 3. If you were to diagram this, the, the opening uh, uh, three verses, the subject is Paul and everything goes under Paul, if you will. The focus is on, uh, Paul is bringing focus to himself, but he is not doing that to, to exalt himself. There's a particular thing that he's getting at given the occasion for writing to Titus. He expands upon his identity. Notice verse one, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's who he is. That's his role, if you will. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, before human history, if you will. But at the proper time in human history, as we will see, at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Again, notice in verses 1 through 3, he really expands upon himself, upon upon who Paul is. And the question that we must ask ourselves is, why? Why is Paul so elaborate about his identity with his child in the faith, as he calls him in verse 4, Titus, his true child in a common faith. Is it because Titus doesn't know about Paul? He's, he's kind of ignorant about Paul's identity? I don't think that that's the answer because Titus knew Paul very intimately. He knew who Paul was. He had watched him. He had, he had especially watched Paul as he dealt with the Corinthian church. Was it also because Paul is trying to exalt himself? I want to really expand upon who I am, Titus, to remind you again of what a great guy I am. That's not the reason either. I think that the reason why Paul writes and elaborates upon his identity is that these are some preliminary truths from this opening introduction that Paul reminds Titus of before his formal instructions to him begin in verse 5 of chapter 1. That Titus is to pass on then and live out with these churches and with these believers. Almost like ministry prerequisites, if you will. Before Titus is to embark on this challenging task of helping establish these churches, and he's going to hear the contents of this letter in chapter 1, verses 5 through following, Titus needs to be reminded of these things for a particular reason. I don't know if back in college, or, or for me, back in college or seminary, Um, There were core classes that you needed to take, and then there were these advanced courses uh, or even electives that you could take uh, in in college or or seminary. 
Some of them were required classes, but the advanced ones, you could choose to take them or not in the electives as well. But with most of those classes, you had to take some prerequisite classes, some required classes, because there was content covered in those, in those classes, material or content that you needed to know in order to succeed in the advanced courses. Well, in some ways, I want you to approach these verses in the same way, or I want us to approach these verses in like manner. The formal instructions to Titus begin in chapter 1, verse 5, of how he's going to help establish these churches. But we glean in these opening verses, because every word in the Word of God is important, and everything that Paul says in this book is important, as inspired by the Lord. We glean some important things, some, I want to call them ministry prerequisites, from these opening verses that the church is to live by. And notice I said the church corporately. Because I want us to be thinking about these corporately, beloved. Sure, every single one of us needs to respond personally before the Lord in obedience. But we're also part of one community of faith, one church. So these are some ministry prerequisites that we as a church must live by if we are to be established and thus give glory to God on this earth. These are some important truths that we're going to be looking at. These prerequisites that as we approach ministry must be crystallized in our minds, beloved, so that truly we are living for the glory of God. Truly we are displaying the glory of God on this earth because it is a wicked and perverse generation. There is a lot of opposition. There is a lot of pushing back on God and who he is and his people on this earth. And so we need to be arming ourselves with these ministry prerequisites before we look at the formal instructions, okay? First of all, as a church, as a church, we must remember our authority. As a church, we must remember our authority. Now, I realize that the word authority has fallen on some hard times because of the abuse of authority or wrong examples of authority here on this earth. But Paul and the biblical authors writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are not afraid to remind their audience, believers, of of authority, this issue of authority. And we gather this from Paul's self-identification in verse 1. Look at what he says. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He calls himself, first of all, a bondservant of God. That's how he identifies himself with, with a slave. And all the connotations that you may think about with regards to uh, being a slave or a bondservant. Paul understood and viewed himself as one in submission to another. One whose life and interests and purposes and pursuits were submitted to his master. Paul was not his own man, if you want to put it that way. Paul was not a self-ruling or self-directing individual. He was a man submitted to God. You know, Christianity is full of beautiful paradoxes, isn't it? And one of the interesting paradoxes is that we look at some biblical personalities like Moses or or David or or Joshua or, or Elijah or Elisha as human beings. And we look at, oh, wow, look at how great those people were. Surely I will never, ever be able to measure up to these those great people. We look at their greatness from a human perspective. And in the eyes of God. He used them in a mighty way to accomplish great things. But on the other hand, those individuals, as well as Paul, beloved, viewed themselves in subservience to God. 
all of those biblical authors, all those personalities rather, who accomplished all of those great things, if you speak to them in heaven someday, will tell you of the fact that they were never worthy to be doing what they were doing. They were slave servants of God. In fact, that's how they referred to themselves. Moses, the man of God, the servant of God. Joshua, the servant of the Lord. Elijah, the prophet and servant of the Lord. They were servants of God, highlighting their humility and their recognition and understanding that they brought nothing to the table, no merit, nothing to boast, and it was all about them being servants of God. Not only that, but Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. The basic meaning of apostle is one who was sent with a message. The idea and the picture is of, of a delegate who was sent forth with orders. And as such, that representative or that delegate didn't have inherent authority in himself, but he came as a representative of, of bearing the full responsibi- responsibility and authority of the one who had sent him. That's the idea of an apostle. One who was given authority as a delegate representative of specifically Jesus Christ, Paul says. That's who he is. That's how he viewed himself. Now, in one sense, all Christians, you can generally say this, have been sent with a message. We are all sent with a message. We have orders from God through his word. We are called to the Great Commission. In a general way, you can say that we have all a message. But when Paul uses the word here, apostle, as his self-identification, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is referring to the official office of an apostle, which no longer exists for today. There were specific requirements for the specific office of an apostle, and they were the following. First of all, according to Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, the office of apostle was reserved for those men who had been with Jesus from the beginning. And what Peter meant there in Acts chapter 1 is those who had walked with Jesus, those who had been exposed to Jesus personally, those who had heard his teaching, seen his life, walked with him, knew him, lived with, um, uh, lived with him and, and spent time with him before his death, during his death as well. Those who were familiar with his ministry, who could speak to others about his person, if you will. We see that in the preaching of the apostles. They, they preached the gospel and because they were so familiar with Jesus, they could, they could talk to people about how he functioned and how he operated. And we see that even in the letters as well. Secondly, the office of an apostle was reserved for those who were direct eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. According to Acts chapter 1, verse 22, they had to be direct eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus because as you see the, 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 um, the church open and, and, or be birthed in the book of Acts and then people, uh, these men begin to preach the gospel, what are they bearing witness concerning? The resurrection. How are you going to preach about a resurrection that you were not direct eyewitnesses to as to lay the foundation and the groundwork for the church, for the church's faith, if you had not seen the risen Jesus in the case of the apostles? But most importantly, most importantly, the office of apostle was reserved for those who were appointed by Jesus himself in a personal way. So you look at Mark chapter 3. And there uh, Jesus calls 12 uh, individuals to himself and appoints the 12, including, by the way, Judas Iscariot, who is going to betray him. 
And then in Acts chapter 1, post Jesus' ascension and exaltation, uh, Peter is there and, and there are two brought forward, Matthias, Matthias and, and, and Barsabas, who are to be the, potentially the, the, the ones that are to be considered uh, to, to uh, uh, fill the spot of Judas Iscariot. And so the people begin to pray in Acts chapter 1 and beseech uh, the Lord, who in that context is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who by lot, they put forward Matthias. Matthias becomes then the 12th apostle. Jesus appointed, by means of prayer in that context, that apostle as well. Well, you say, what about Paul? I mean, he was not with Jesus from the beginning, right? And of course, the answer is no. But in Acts chapter 9... What happened to Paul? Jesus appeared to him directly, personally, spoke with him, saved him, and personally appointed him to be an apostle. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, that Paul would be a chosen instrument of Jesus's to the Gentiles, and that Jesus was going to show him how much he must suffer for Jesus's sake. Paul knew that he was unique, unique in this sense, that he was uniquely called by Jesus. He said um, that he was one uh, who was untimely born, one who did not belong in the same class as these other apostles, if you will. He knew that about himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 8 through 9, he, re- he describes himself as one untimely born. He viewed himself, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, as the least of the apostles. He didn't view himself worthy to be considered an, an apostle. Paul had great humility. I don't deserve this. It's by the grace of God that I am who I am, and I have labored more than the others. He knew that he had a special calling, and yet that was not an opportunity for self-exaltation. How different, beloved, and we're going to look at this more in detail, but the false teachers of today, the self-acclaimed apostles, who claim that they have a special calling from God and, and they pronounce themselves apostles and they exploit people and they ask people for money and they ask people to follow them and they deceive people into destruction? How do they, how do they um, uh, harmonize the humility of the apostles in the New Testament as we behold their humility and their suffering? None of these guys are suffering. If you, watch their, if you look at their, their possessions, Rolls Royces, multiple homes, and they point to those possessions as if, well, God is a God who wants me to prosper. Well, according to your definition, dude, false teachers. We're going to get into that later on more, but I want you to notice that Paul is humble, and he understands that he's a man under authority. He's He's a slave under God, and he's sent and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. He no longer rules his own life, but is devoted to the interests of God. And isn't that the heart of every Christian? Or should be the heart that we cultivate, beloved? One of the distinguishing marks of the Christian is that you understand that you may struggle in life and you may have frailties and weaknesses, but you are no longer to be ruling yourself. You are no longer to be living in service and submission to your own uh, lustful desires. You are to be living in submission to Jesus The one who came to seek and to save the lost. When you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you confessed Him as as Lord and Savior. 
Lord means master, one who has rights and, 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 and say over everything in your life, your thoughts, your actions, your words, your pursuits, your goals, everything in life. Jesus is Lord. I want to ask yourself, as you go through life and you make decisions and you set goals for yourself and for your family, are you driven by what you think or are you driven by what God thinks? If you have a job, you understand this, right? If you are a, an employee, by and large, you don't have a say in how things go there. Your boss is your boss, and a good boss will give you the reasons why he thinks the way that he does or she thinks the way that she does. But you are to be in submission and in authority under that person. And we have corrupt bosses or corrupt people above us who exploit their authority. How about in the case of Jesus Christ? The one in whom we're in submission under. It says that his commandments are not burdensome. He's a loving Savior and a loving Lord who is glorifying himself in and through us, but he also acts in accordance with his desire to love us and because of what is helpful and, and, and good for us. That's how Jesus uses his authority. Now, again, we may ask, why does Paul feel the need to identify himself this way with Titus? Didn't Titus already know that these things, these things about Paul? And the answer is yes. He knew that Paul was a, an apostle and a servant. He didn't need to be reminded of these things, including Paul's identity, beloved. But this is significant because Paul is writing to his gospel partner, Titus, to remind him of who is Paul's authority. That even the great apostle Paul, writing the hard things that he's going to write to Titus, that he needs to then preach and teach to the people in establishing them. Even the great apostle Paul derives his authority and is in submission to God. He works for God, if you will. And not only that, but Titus needed backing and support. This young partner of, of Paul, this apostolic representative on the island of Crete. I mean, can you imagine Titus? On the island of Crete, he is not Paul. He is not even an apostle. He is an apostolic representative on the island of Crete. People knew Paul, maybe not necessarily Titus as well. And can you imagine the challenging place that this was? We kind of described that last week a little bit. A difficult place. A place where there are false teachers arising within and people opposing from without. Where there are people struggling in the church with worldliness as we'll see from the contents of the letter. I mean, this is a challenging place. And, and your mission, if you're in Titus's shoes, is to establish these churches. Not a small task. What do you need? You need backing. You need support. You need credibility. You need to be reminded from the great apostle Paul, your spiritual father, if you will, who... who of the courage and, the, and the, the confidence with which you need to do the work on the island of Crete, not because of your own inherent worth or authority or abilities, even, or even Paul's, but because Almighty God was behind this. And this is his word that Paul was, was entrusting to Titus. So Paul is not writing these things just for, just for Titus's recollection, but he is writing them to remind Titus who his authority ultimately is. 
Titus is to teach and minister and preach with the conviction that God is ultimately behind this. And Jesus Christ has commissioned him as an apostle. And he's to carry out that work with that kind of mindset, beloved. Because there are some hard things in this letter. And I'll tell you what, man, I've already been challenged massively with some of the things and the contents in this letter. And I know you will if you have a humble, teachable heart. And yet, Paul says this to Titus in chapter 2, verse 15. These things, the various exhortations he just gave to, the, for, to Titus, to the various groups in the church, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. With all authority, t- Titus. These are hard things, my spiritual son, but this is the word of God. That's what I am delivering to you. So speak with authority, reprove, speak, exhort with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Speak confidently, Titus. Just turn back a couple of pages to 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. Paul speaks the same way or essentially exhorts Titus with the same kind of mindset with regards to Holy Scripture and the authority that that comes behind Holy Scripture before the congregation. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed out. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's the foundation. High view of Scripture, high view of God's authority, because it comes from Him. He gave it to us. So in light of that, chapter 4, verse 1, Timothy, I solemnly charge you. In light of this high view of Scripture and where it comes from, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why are people always going to love the Word? And even being told that it comes from from God Himself, so they are under the authority of the Word of God? Uh Uh-uh. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and, and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Solemn words to Timothy. Why? Because Timothy is such a great guy with great abilities? No, because Timothy is unfolding the ministry of God. He's a servant of God. And the word of God is to be preached and ministered to the people, even in Ephesus, in a way where people understand that this is coming from God himself. Now listen, you and I are not the Apostle Paul. We're not Titus, an apostolic representative on the island of Crete. But you know what? We are those who stand upon the authoritative teaching of the apostles, beloved. The redeemed. 
We are those who, who, who have been given this beautiful deposit and trusted with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We have in the word of God the blueprint for faith and practice. We are not reinventing the wheel every time that we get up and we preach and teach or the way we are unfolding biblically as we strive to unfold biblically ministry in the church. We are not trying to reinvent the wheel. We are simply called to look upon the Word of God and simply follow in continuing the work that Jesus began with His apostles and has continued over the centuries by means of His Word, in the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God. That's who we are. We have a treasure entrusted to us. This is why the Reformation is so important, beloved, or was so important and continues to be. And why it's important for us to not not be oblivious to the Reformation. We're celebrating the 500th year of the Protestant uh, uh, celebration of the 500th year of the, the Protestant Reformation this year. Why is that so important? I submit to you because of the fact that People who gave their lives during that time and people before that and people since that time believed with all of their hearts that the common folk, the people of God, needed to have Scripture in their own language so that they could know God and know the gospel and know how God wanted them to live. Their own exposure to the truth. So we cherish that time. And I hope and pray that you're looking forward to October when we do a great celebration as a church of the Reformation, regardless of whatever baggage you carry with regards to that period of time. You need to understand people gave their lives so that you are sitting now in a pew with a Bible in your own language. Yes, ultimately it came from God, this gift, but God used means and the, and the means that he used were people and martyrs, people who gave their life for this truth you understand. So don't dismiss the Reformation, folks. Don't look at the evils or the sins or the weaknesses of believers during that time and say, Ah, see, they were corrupt men. Everybody's corrupt. Moses was a sinner. David was a sinner too. And yet God used those individuals in his word to accomplish great things, right? Sorry to go off on that tangent about the Reformation, but I hear so much negativity these days. Not so much from our church, but other circles. Wow! Are we that arrogant and pompous that we have forgotten about the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints passed on to us by people like that 500 years ago as well? We should cherish those things. Amen? We as Christians hold the authoritative word of God through much blood by people who loved us, even though they didn't know us, believers, who gave their lives to give us this Bible with the saving message of Christ for us so we are people under authority, beloved. And the Cretans, the Cretan Christians, or Christians on the island of Crete, were to realize that. That as Titus is going to establish the churches, as Titus is going to give them these instructions and minister to them and pastor them and establish these things and set things in order, they had a choice. Would they hear these things and receive these instructions uh, ultimately from the mouth of the apostle and ultimately from God through his representative Titus? And were they going to respond by embracing and obeying those instructions or would they simply continue with life as before? Passive. Complacent. Living in sin. Making excuses. Would they do that? 
We too have a choice, don't we? As the apost- this apostolic doctrine ultimately from God has been passed down to us over the centuries, don't we have a choice as well? As we study God's word and we, and we hear it, the question is, beloved, even as we work through the book of Titus, are we going to yield to the word of God in loving obedience or are we going to dismiss it? Eh, there's more important things in scripture. I don't really need to evangelize. I'm sick and tired of hearing messages on having to share my faith with people. I am not an evangelist and I don't have a gift of evangelism. You're being disobedient. I am sick and tired of being told that I need to be, as an older woman, investing myself into younger women. I'm sick and tired of hearing that. Then you, if you do not obey, you are in sin. I am sick and tired of hearing as an older man that I need to invest myself into younger men and, in, and, and be passing on the things that have been entrusted to me. I'm sick and tired of hearing that. If you are not walking in obedience and discipling younger men, you are in sin. And that, yes, that looks differently for different individuals. Everybody's gifted differently and wired different. The way that you disciple somebody may be very different than the way somebody else disciples. But we're going to look at hard contents in the book of Titus. Will you submit to the word of God? Because it comes with the fullness of God's authority passed on to the Apostle Paul and others given to his people. The Christians on the island of Crete had that choice, beloved. And some of us have that as well. Will you excuse it? Excuse yourself from following it? Will you treat it lightly? Will you treat it as recommendations? These are recommendations. These are opinions. Well, the way that you guys see that is not the way that I see it, so I don't really need a disciple. The way that you guys see that is not the way that I see it, so I don't need to submit myself under my governing authorities and have respect. Titus chapter 3. I don't need to be concerned about true doctrine and genuine doctrine and healthy doctrine in the church because I'm not a fighting fundy. Really? Titus is all about sound doctrine, sound teaching that leads to sound living expressed in love for God and love for others. Will you submit to it? I see some tough things, right? Titus needed to understand and arm himself with the reality that this doctrine was being passed on to him by the authoritative apostle of Jesus Christ. The fullness of that authority. And he needed to be bold and confident and speak and exhort and reprove with all authority that no Cretan Christian could disregard the word of God. Not because it was Titus's, but it was because it was the word of the living God. So it is in the church today, beloved. So it is in the church today. Some of us have very soft and tender hearts. Oh, you're so teachable. You're an example to me in that area. You're eager. You're an eager beaver for the word a student of the Word of God. You receive it and you appropriate it to your life and you're saturating yourself in, the, in, that, in that hot water of the Word, exposing your sin and challenging you above and beyond your comfort zone so that you get out of your closet and you're able to, to live out your Christianity in public. You're such an example of teachability and application of the Word of God. Others of us are well-guarded fortresses pushing back against what God says and how God says we ought to be living our lives. Not wanting to go outside of our comfort zones. Pointing to the culture around us and saying, well, the culture is not doing that. And that's a third world country and that's how they're called to live. We don't need to apply the word of God in our context because we're America. 
Our American citizenship doesn't drive how we live out our Christianity, beloved. It's the other way around. Our relationship with Jesus Christ and his word calls us to live in a certain way in the midst of a culture like America. You understand that? We make all kinds of excuses. These are suggestions. We are stubborn in our hearts and we dig in our heels and we don't allow the word of God to penetrate the inner recesses of our thinking patterns so that we submit ourselves to God's word in our thinking and it flows out in our life and our conduct. That the word shapes our perspective. And you know what it comes down to, beloved, ultimately? We love our sin too much. We love our sin. And that sin has many tentacles. It could be explicit sins that everybody can see. Or it could be you have a God, an idol called your comfort. An idol that is called complacency. An idol that we can call sin laziness. Indifference towards others. is the worst kind of hatred, by the way. The opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is indifference to the needs of other people, you understand. The, the absence of engaging in active love and serving other people. Those are respectable sins. We protect our territory. We protect our, the closet of our hearts, if you will. And we don't want to go out of our comfort zone. That is a sinful lifestyle as well. You understand that? Well, we focus on the explicit sins, Right? Abortion, murder, uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, all of these explicit sins. Listen, we as Christians become so good sometimes at making our sin that is not as explicit virtuous. And God wants to deal with our hearts and the very inner recesses of who you are at your core as you look at the book of Titus. You understand? He wants to do that. And he wants to do that. Listen to me. Because he has fullness of authority over your life as your creator, as your heavenly father. He loves you. He wants you to live in obedience to him because for his glory and because it is ultimately what is best for you. So if Titus, and by the way, if you are a non-believer this morning, this applies to you too. Sometimes non-believers can say things like, you know what? Um, uh, I have a choice. It's my choice whether I want to live this way or not. It's my choice if I want to obey this Bible and to believe that it is the, the word of God that reveals the true gospel. It's my choice. It's my choice if I want to disagree with a Christian about the way that you live your life, Christian, as opposed to how I want to live. So I guess in one way, for the sake of human conversation, you could say that. But ultimately, you know what Paul calls saving faith in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he calls it the obedience of faith. That ultimately, the call of the gospel for you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, confessing him as Lord and Savior, is not an option for you. It's not optional. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, the head of the church. He is the king of the universe. And he's returning and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And every person will bow the knee to King Jesus, whether you did it in a broken way over your sin, where you pleaded for God's mercy and you submitted your life to Christ, or he breaks your knees. Frightening, isn't it? 
And yet he's allowed you, non-believer, to live every day. This morning you woke up and your heart is beating and your kidneys are functioning and you're here next to other people. The reality of it is, is he's giving you life and breath and all things. He is being gracious to you. He's being merciful to you, keeping you alive because he does not wish for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You understand why Paul needs to identify himself this way, right? If Titus is to fulfill the work of establishing these churches, this massive task, he must remember first and foremost that he operates under the authority of God as Paul did. And we too, beloved, must know our authority and minister with that in mind, that we are people under the authority of the Word of God and we are to minister that way if we are to be established as a church and give glory to God. Secondly, we must remember our mission. Not only must we remember our authority, but we must remember our mission, having referenced um, the fact that he's a man under God's authority. Paul now speaks of his own purpose or mission. He is an apostle, he says in verse 1. Notice, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Paul's ministry, he says, is twofold. First, it's an evangelistic one. He is on mission for the faith of those chosen of God. Paul understood. He, he was not confused about why he was here on this earth. As he anticipated the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, his focus was upon bringing the chosen of God to saving faith. That's what he says there. Faith there, by the way, is not faith in an objective body of doctrine in this context, but faith refers to the subjective response of faith from a person to the saving message of Christ. So, Paul preaches the saving gospel to all. That's what we're called to knowing that in the sovereignty of God, in His infinite wisdom, God is in charge of doing the work in the heart of those whom He has chosen. And the chosen of God here is not, as some say, God somehow looking down the corridors of time to see who He will choose if they choose Him back. That is not what this is talking about. What this is emphasizing is is God's prerogative according to His sovereign choice. He chooses. But we, from a human perspective, we don't know. We don't know. Only God knows. So what do we do, beloved? We preach the gospel to everyone. To everyone. As C.H. Spurgeon used to say, we'd never meet anybody, essentially is what he said, that has an E on their back for elect. So what do we do? We preach the gospel to everyone. We are faithful to preaching the gospel and leave the results up to, to the Lord. By the way, this in no way removes human responsibility. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that. That the sovereignty of God in salvation is an excuse that somebody can say, you know what? God has not saved me. He didn't elect me. He didn't choose me. And that's why I'm not a Christian. As if to excuse themselves from repenting from their sins and committing their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus said in John 6.37, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. 
And that is not someone who's coming to Jesus, if you will, on their own terms. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know what it means to call upon the name of the Lord? That is symbolic of allegiance and devotion and worship internally from the heart where you are broken over your sin, having been confronted with the gospel, and you realize, oh man, I am in major trouble. I am a sinner in the hands of an angry God. I cannot do anything in my own merits. I cannot work for my salvation. God requires absolute perfection, and there is only one mediator between God and man, the perfect God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one. To call upon the name of the Lord is, is to, is to uh, ascribe allegiance and devotion to Jesus Christ as the only way, the truth, and the life. Not coming on your own terms. Not wanting to hold on to your own sin. Your sin on one hand and Jesus on the other hand. To call upon the name of the Lord is when you realize your brokenness before a holy God, that you are at the mercy of a holy God, and you are helpless and hopeless, and there's nothing, nothing, nothing you could ever do or have done or could have done to earn your way to acceptance before a holy God. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. His perfect life, His death, His resurrection, His exaltation, and us in Christ is how, beloved, you can be forgiven of your sins. Only in Him. Notice also, not only is Paul's mission an evangelistic one for the faith of those chosen of God, but it's also an edificational one, if you will. He says, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Paul ministers to people, notice that they would come to saving faith and that they might progress to a fuller, deeper knowledge. Is that the idea of knowledge there of the truth is, is an, it's an intensified form of the word to know. It means fuller, deeper, more comprehensive, complete knowledge. On the one hand, knowledge can puff up when not accompanied by love. On the other hand, listen, Christians are called to be growing in their knowledge of God by means of his word, and in particular, the gospel and the implications of the gospel to their lives. We are called to be growing in the knowledge of God. And notice it doesn't end there, that we're just growing in knowledge and becoming fat with knowledge in our heads. He says, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to what? Godliness. Note that there's a progression here, okay? We come to saving faith, and then we enter a process by which we grow in our knowledge of God and His truth, and then the truth saturates our thinking so that our view of God changes and our view of His church and of His people and of the unbelieving world, and we're saturated with those truths, and we begin to appropriate the truth of the Word of God to our lives so that we become less trusting in ourselves and more trusting in God. Godliness is conduct that is deeply devoted to God, not self. Truth here is not theoretical or speculative or intellectual, and it doesn't have any impact on your affections and your emotions and your feelings and your passions. But the truth of God is to, is to saturate you in such a way, beloved, that you're moved in a direction where you're passionate for the Lord and passionate to love His people. Godliness, a life of faith, which shows itself in the abandonment of dead works to a life of good works, as we're going to see for the glory of God in the book of Titus. 
Godliness is ultimately in conformity to Jesus Christ, right? In conformity to the Lord. Does this just happen? Godliness doesn't just happen. Paul said to, to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline is rigorous. There's work and sweat and blood, if you will, in this thing. Just like a, a runner preparing for a marathon needs to condition and sweat and build stamina and muscle for that race to be able to finish, so it is in the Christian life. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And how does greater godliness occur? But when we appropriate the word of God to our lives, beloved, not just becoming hearers who are self-deceived, but doers of the word. Doers of the word. And you know what? Ultimately, when we are growing in godliness, it should be true of us that we are growing in our love for one another. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17, Jesus said. And he, Jesus, was personified truth. And if there's something about Jesus, is that not only was he committed to the truth, but he was the most loving, most compassionate, merciful person that ever walked on the face of this planet. So as you behold Jesus, you are to be committed to the truth, and you are to be committed to following his example of loving his Father and loving your fellow brethren and loving the lost. Listen to 1 Peter 1.22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, having come to Christ, in other words, salvation he's describing there, not in an ordinal kind of way, but since this has happened, fervently love one another from the heart, stretchingly, selflessly, sacrificially. You want a litmus test, beloved, for how godly you are, and if truly the the truth of the Word of God is impacting your heart and you're beholding Jesus on the pages of His Word so that you are being changed, you want to know, do a good litmus test of how godly you are? How much do you love your brethren? How committed are you to putting your, your needs after someone else's. How compassionate are you towards others who need to hear the gospel? Toward unbelievers. Love. Love is a predominant characteristic, isn't it? Of the believer. The greatest two commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else falls under that. If you are a godly person like God in certain aspects, then you need to recognize that God is love and those who belong to God must live out a love for God and love for others. For God is love. Let me end with First John chapter 4. And we'll pick up the third point next week, okay? For, listen to First John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and hence sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means the, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also are to love one another. You know what makes it possible for you to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? That God has poured out his love toward you. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through his Holy Spirit who was given to us. As we understand the love of God, we are able out of the overflow of that understanding of God's love for us, love other people, beloved. Sound doctrine leads to sound living that is expressed in the love for God and the love for your brethren. Isn't that what the one another's are? Ultimately, they fall under the great umbrella of loving your fellow brothers and sisters so that you practice the one another's. So we continue to grow in knowledge, but we allow that knowledge, beloved, to drive us towards a greater love for the Lord and for others. Galatians 5, 6, faith working through love. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, through love, he says, serve one another. Through love serve one another. So notice the progression. Trust in Christ. This is Paul's mission. He wants to bring people to trust in Christ for that they would grow in their knowledge of God and his word, right? And that knowledge is to lead to godliness, which ultimately is in conformity to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. We will look at the third point next week, okay? Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. Oh Lord, time is never enough to Lord just dig into your word and to Lord find the nuggets of gold found in your word. Father, I pray that we might walk away from these things and Lord not be forgetful hearers, but effectual doers and that we would realize that meditation and reflection and saturation of our minds in these truths is the bridge to right application. Lord, help us to be people who are purposeful and deliberate. Help us, Lord, to be people who arm ourselves with the great reality that we are under your authority and that we would minister with that authority in mind, not lording it over people, Lord, but remembering that, that, Lord, we have your precious word that we are to submit to and that we are to call others to submit to as well. Thank you for the mission that you've called us to of making disciples. As you called Paul to do this, you call us as well. Father, help us during this week to apply these truths to our lives in a joyful and loving manner. In Jesus' name, amen.